Good morning. My name is Tracy, and our scripture today is James 1, 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning. Hope you have your Bibles open or a text on your app available as we look through James chapter 1. If you've been with us, we've been in James now. This is the third week, and, and I mentioned the first week when we literally only looked at the first verse by way of introduction that James is going to give this wisdom type message and we're dealing with wisdom today so we better define it or see what he's going to talk about but james is a book that wants to get into your life wants to challenge the way that you live and i mentioned early on that there are three main themes that the book of james addresses and it kind of covers these themes from different aspects and circles around them in different ways but those three themes are suffering wisdom and money or finances. Clearly three issues that just need a lot of biblical insight and direction. Well, last week, verses 2 to 4 dealt specifically with suffering, and this week, verses 5 through 8 in chapter 1 deal with wisdom. Now you'll see James circle around this topic in lots of different ways, meaning lots of the topics that James will address in these five chapters will be an aspect of wisdom, and the way that we speak, and the way that we live. And, but you could even argue that wisdom speaks in these other two topics as well, about how we think about our money or wealth and how we manage suffering. But we are in those first three introductory topics of suffering, wisdom, and money. Let me just pray and ask the Lord to minister to us as we turn to His Word. Father, thank You for Your Holy Scripture. And thank you that we can gather in your name on Sunday morning and receive your word. And Lord, we need it. Because we can be self-deceived or we can be struggling and wounded. And we can be challenging you in certain ways. And we know that your word teaches, rebukes, corrects, and trains your disciples. So open our eyes that we may see the wondrous things of your law minister to us through your word and by your spirit today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think these four verses can be broken down this way. Verse 5 is when James gives the main categories he wants us to get regarding the topic of wisdom. And then in verses 6 to 8, he gives some commentary, both how to receive wisdom and how not to, or what not to do. So we'll start looking at verse 5, and then we'll wrestle with verses 6 to 8. And my summary of verse 5 that I put in your notes for you is this. One of the primary virtues of a mature Christian is wisdom. In many ways, it shouldn't be surprising that after three verses, rough, a rough three verses on suffering... James would immediately jump into the topic of wisdom. Because to suffer purposefully 
requires wisdom. In fact, it, it shouldn't surprise us at all that verse 5 begins as it does. Maybe because it's been over 150 hours, we weren't even thinking about verses 2 to 4. But if you had just if we had just finished verses 2 to 4 and you're thinking about the call to endure suffering for God to work in you, you could be thinking, that feels overwhelming. Lord, help me in that. And then verse 5 comes around and the author says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. But before we wrestle with what wisdom is to do or where it comes from, I think we should define wisdom carefully. Since it's not just a major theme in James but it is significant for the entire Christian life. Let me say what it's not first. The Bible does not equate wisdom with knowledge or intelligence. It's not what you know or how much you know. That doesn't mean that those things are opposed or challenging to wisdom, not at all. It just simply means wisdom is not just what you know. Maybe a good proof of this comes from later in James Itself, when James is speaking about the demons who know all these things to be true, yet they are not living in a certain way. Wisdom is not just about knowledge or intelligence. So what is wisdom? Well, I give you two definitions. One would be a little bit more lofty. Let's try to hold all these things together. And one is more on the ground. Here's a lofty definition. Wisdom is a way of life. That's a, I think that's a really good way to think of it. Wisdom is a way of life that is in harmony with both the created order and God's redemptive work in Christ. I say it's lofty for this reason. Wisdom is living well as embodied humans under God as creator and under God as redeemer. And putting those two things together well. That's, that, that's complex. What does it mean to live well under God as creator? And to think of myself as a created being? What does it mean to live well with God as my redeemer? And to have my life be Christ's and Christ's alone? There's that lofty definition. And if anything, just hear that opening statement, wisdom is a way of life. See, it's not just knowledge. It's not just intelligence. It's a way of life. So, so here's a more on the ground definition. Wisdom is living life in accordance with God. It's aligning our lives in such a way that they match who God is, how God created us to be, what God intends for us to do, and ultimately what God desires for us to fulfill. That's a thick understanding. It means that, the, that wisdom reflects, is reflected in our practices and our postures. And it should flow from the goodness of God, the grace of God, and even God's goals for the world. Again, that's, that's, that's still thick, isn't it? Way of life practices and postures. It's not just what I know. It's how I live what I know. Well, maybe we can think of it this way. I gave in your notes just a, a few ways of thinking through the aspects of embodied wisdom. Wisdom as a way of life. 
And, and, and I, I bring forward the mind and the eyes and the heart and the hands. Four different aspects of human activity and function. Here's the first. Wisdom guides the mind of the Christian to think God's thoughts. Again, that is deeply entrenched in God's word. That's formed by his promises. That's in line with how he made all things to be. That takes time. But again, it's not just theoretical like you pass an examination. It's embodied. I'm beginning to think the thoughts of God because I am saturated with his word and I'm formed by it. It, it becomes instinctive. Again, way of life. A second would be wisdom guides the eyes of the Christian to see God's will. I cannot fathom a better example of that than last week's text in verses 2 to 4. Who in their right mind would willingly say, and, or look at their situation and say, let suffering do its good work in you? Like, who can say that? Unless their mind has been formed to think God's thoughts. And what are his thoughts? His thoughts are that he's a good God. And as evil as the world is, God is more powerful. And what they or the world intended for evil, God intends for good. Genesis 50. As a lens through which to see the will of God in the midst of our suffering. So that even a horrific thing that a family is going through or an individual is going through or a community or a nation is going through, in the midst of that, and without knowing all the, all the hows and all the winds or even specific all the whys, we trust the who so much that we actually allow our suffering to form us. That is wisdom. That's not easy to do. Because the mind has been formed to think God's thoughts. And the eyes have been guided to see God's will. And, and get that, e even in what is unseen. Like, I don't know exactly what God is going to do. I don't know how much I can endure. I don't know how much more I can manage. But I know so much about the who. And I know the grand purposes of the why that I entrust myself to God. That's wisdom. That's a way of life. A third would be wisdom guides the heart of the Christian to de desire God's loves. To desire God's loves. What does God love? My loves should match God's loves. I was joking in the growth hour, I used as an example that even though it was before our daughter was born, just with our two little boys, Sunday afternoon... We were not, in California, we were not 49ers fans, no offense. We were not Chargers fans. We were Bears fans. And they never studied the Chicago Bears in school. I don't think there was ever a curriculum in our EFCA church in Southern California that covered the Chicago Bears once. But my two little boys from an early age love the Chicago Bears. And the only reason is implicitly, instinctively, they were catechized by their father. But I never did this, no, dinner table, we're going to do Chicago Bears devotions. Like, it was never that. It was just, they could feel 
the thing for which I had affection for, and they wanted to be like dad and feel the same things. And I remember, and I've shared this with you all before, I remember hearing that or seeing that the first time and panicking, not because I was bothered that they liked the Chicago Bears. I was actually more bothered my daughter started being a Vikings fan. But it wasn't about that they were Chicago Bears fans. It was like, if they felt that without me ever giving a, a devotional training guide, how many other things have I taught them to love that might not be worthy of their affection that I didn't even think about because I never thought about them liking the Bears? I just liked the Bears, and so did they. Wisdom guides the heart of the Christian to desire God's loves so that you begin to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that you love your neighbor as yourself, which is not instinctive. And that you love one another as Christ has loved us in the church. Finally, wisdom guides the hands of the Christian to do God's commands. You see how wisdom as a way of life can involve the mind, it can involve the eyes, it can involve the heart and the hands, or it can involve our thoughts, our will, our loves, and our obedience. There's wisdom. I don't know if it's better to truncate that down more simply. If we try to shrink it, it now all of a sudden equates wisdom with knowledge, and I doubt Satan knows any less than any other theologian on the planet, but he doesn't live wisely. It's not just a gifting and intellect that's referred to here. It's not just a mental thing. It's a, it's a life that's lived well. Wisdom is embodied. It's put into practice. It's shown in words and deeds. That doesn't mean it doesn't involve our thinking. It does. But it involves our doing as well. It is a way of life where you begin to function beautifully as God the Creator made you to be, and God the Redeemer empowered you to do. It's living life in accordance with God. It's not always answering the exactly what should I do questions. I remember when I was still teaching at Biola in Talbot, California, I'd been there about four years. And I went the academic track first and did all this grad school and then the UK for three years and I graduated and get a job teaching and I loved it and I was good at it and it was a lot of fun. But I just felt this pull to the local church I could not shake. Just couldn't shake it. And I think naively as a young 30-year-old, I was thinking, oh, you can do two things at one time and then like babies and a wife let me know that's not going to work. Um, you're limited. You're human. And I realized I have to choose one. One's going to be headquarters and the other one gets leftovers. And there was a well-known pastor theologian came and they would, they would, we have people all over the world coming and giving talks and chapel or lectures or whatever. And there would regularly, those guests would come with a theology faculty and they'd, they'd, there'd be a lunch and we'd all be there having lunch with this individual. And then he or she would get up and give a talk for a few minutes and there'd be some Q and A and it was great. And this individual came and he got up there and spoke for a few minutes. And then afterwards I got up there because he was a longtime pastor, well-known theologian. And I kind of wanted to ask him what he thought this 34 year old should do. So I go up there expecting this great answer. He's going to solve all my questions and confusion. I tell him what I just shared with you. 
And I got about two sentences before he turned on to the next person in line. He goes, it's easy, young man. You're not sinning either way. Embrace your Christian liberty and serve the Lord faithfully. Next question. I was like, that's it? That's all you're going to give me? Help me out, man. What should I do? These are big decisions. I got like two and a half kids at home and a wife that's already moved around the country a bit. What do I do here? So I went home for a couple days. I was a little frustrated with that. But, but as I processed, and maybe this is what the text speaks about, of God ministering wisdom by His Spirit, the work of God, I, I couldn't shake the Christian liberty thing. There's a truth in that. There's wisdom. I, but, but there's also offense. You're not sinning. Well, there's wisdom. So there's a boundary, but, it, but it's not specific, meaning he, not even I know the secret will of God, exactly what's going to happen at this year in that. God knows that, but I don't know that. But I do have in his word the revealed will of God. So Christian wisdom then aligns your heart, your hands, your eyes, and your mind to God's revealed will, which includes both a boundary, but also a blessing. Serve the Lord faithfully. You are not sinning if you serve in the academy and teach students Greek and theology and how to read the Bible for the rest of your life. And you are not sinning if you want to serve pastorally in a local church, but just do it faithfully. So maybe that's where verse 5 comes in. Notice how he starts. With all of these definitions of wisdom, if any of you lacks wisdom, well, to be fair, the Greek word could be translated since. That gives it a different feel, doesn't it? Since you lack wisdom, or if any of you lack wisdom. The sense of it, though, is that it's assuming we need wisdom, because it's about to tell us who gives it and how we receive it. That we are maturing, and that we need God to minister wisdom to us. And what verse 5 makes clear is that God is the source of wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, it doesn't say you necessarily need more schooling, though that can't hurt, common grace. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't be getting counsel from lots of Christians. That's certainly not going to hurt either. The counsel, the fellowship of brothers and sisters, and the wisdom of counsel. But it does say you should ask God. And then it gives this interesting phrase, who gives generously to all without finding fault. Now that word generously is only used here in the whole New Testament. So we don't have a lot of data samples to know exactly what it means. But interestingly, the Greek term can mean with great intention. I love that understanding. That God gives wisdom to his children with Great intentionality. Think about the beauty of this. The God who knows all things and knows exactly what you need with great intentionality guides you exactly as you need it. I remember being that young parent with tall little toddlers with table corners and just instinctively putting my hand at the corner of a table when their big old noggins was getting close. Just got, just got used to it. Yeah, yeah, talking to somebody and bloop, I see a head, I got a hand on the corner. Because I know these clink heads are going to knock into something. 
They got to bloop, put that there so that their little heads when they're carrying their little fire truck doesn't get seriously damaged because I'm just being an intentional dad of my children. Now think of the beauty multiplied by a million of God the Father who knows exactly what his children need and with great intentionality and perfect timing and precision, exactly when you need it, God the Father gives to all. I love that statement, without finding fault. God gives without judgment. He doesn't give with guilt. You, you, you ever done that? You're one of those who don't play Uno in my family. After dinner, if you lose, someone's going to give it to you. If you're talking smack at the beginning and you lose, you're going to get something. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it is. That's not God. He doesn't humiliate us because we need him. He made us. He knows we need him. God gives without judgment, without guilt, without finding fault. His loving intention is to help us grow up and live in Christ. Pause for a minute and think about this. Do you see how many times the Bible describes God as being both sovereign and powerful and mighty and perfect, yet compassionate and understanding and sympathetic and entering in? Like, Do you see the view of the biblical God? A God who would give his son to die on the cross in your place, who empowers you and gives you, doesn't judge you when you can't do something, and empowers you when you need it. That is your God, Christians. When we just saying to him, great is your faithfulness, we were speaking truths that are summarized in a thousand Bible verses, including this one. Why are you faithful? Because you generously, with perfect intentionality, give to us, your children, wisdom, and you don't judge us for it. You just quickly, your hand is there. We don't even realize it was your hand the whole time blocking that corner or guiding us because you're that kind of a father. That'll help us as we look at the commands in verse 6. But before we do, let's, let's make sure, sure we know this. Just like verses 2 to 4, just as we must allow God to make us mature through suffering, so we must ask God to make us wise. And the rest of Scripture would say that happens by the Spirit. That God indwells us by His Spirit and He forms us and He molds us. Even arguably, I don't know the secret will of God, but arguably that comment from that pastor at that faculty lunch, when my first response to that was unhelpful, was later unshaking in my mind as I reflected on the words and it formed me. Because God, in a prideful human being like me, was going to, without judging me, generously and with intentionality use all these things to guide me in a way of life that are his purposes. But do you depend on God that way? Think of it this way. If the God of this world, that's Satan, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, lowercase g, if the God of this world blinds the eyes of believers, then the gift of wisdom that God gives us allows the Christian to see Christ. 
Here's more on this way of life. If the normal sinful bent of a person is self-love, self-preservation, and self-gain, the gift of wisdom from God is a love of God and a love of others. Again, that's way of life. If the normal sinful bent of a person is devotion to money, power, and pleasure, the gift of wisdom from God is a devotion to God and a commitment to His church and His people and a pursuit of His purposes for the world. All these things happen mysteriously by the work of the Spirit in us, but we ask for them. And we know that when we are living in a way of life that is in accordance with God, we know it was God intentionally and graciously ministering to us as, his, as the Father to His children. Now let's look at verses 6 to 8. Be ready of that picture of God, because in verse 6, there's a strong command. I, I, I summarize these verses by, in this way. The first and foundational step toward wisdom is believing, not doubting. And that contrast is pointed here. Believing, not doubting, that God is the source and supplier of wisdom. James now presses into us. He presses into us regarding God's promised gift of wisdom. And he states it both positively and negatively. And he spends, honestly, there are more words on this about what not to do than what to do. Look at 6 to 8, I'll read it. But when you ask, again, it's assuming you will, here's, here's the positive negative command. You must believe and not doubt. The rest of our passages, here's what happens if you doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. If you, if you have read the Proverbs, if you've read wisdom literature in the Bible, you'll know that it does a real clean contrast between the wise and the fool. And welcome to James picking up on that theme here. The wise person believes God and receives the wisdom that he will give. The fool doubts God. And 6b through 8 is a depiction of their life. So the first command, we must believe that God will give us wisdom when we ask Him for it. Even though we cannot understand or fully see the ways God gives us wisdom by His Spirit, we must believe that He is faithful and that He's at work in us. This is more than a doctrinal truth we accept. This is an act of receptive dependence upon God. Think of it this way. We accept Jesus' death in our place, but we know we need the gospel reality of Jesus as our death. He lived the life we couldn't live and died the death we deserved. We accept that, but notice what we are tempted to do afterwards. We accept his death in our place, but we live like we can morally take it from there. Or that we can biblically figure out the deep truths of God in a deep, complex world. Or that we can culturally engage with the world without his assistance. This is all naivete. And a rejection of the fact that we need God for everything. You never get beyond God. Like a child who learns to walk and eventually gets there without the support 
of a parent's hand, we never get there. You, you don't see the, you don't, you, you see the Bible talk about people as mature, but you never see them ever called adults. They're always children of God. You never see the Bible say, well, there's children of God and then there's adults of God. It's always children. It talks about immature children and mature children, but it never goes to adults of God. It's always children. The whole Bible. Let that, let that image and metaphor depict for you the kind of dependence the Christian has on God. You never get beyond that. Unlike a child where at first you're literally carrying them everywhere. Like this morning, several little babies being carried around beautifully. And then they're little toddlers and you're helping them once in a while. They're leaning on a table. That's when you got the head blockers on the corners. And then they're walking pretty good, but you're holding their hand and they're stumbling a bit, but whoop, knee goes, but there they are hanging from your arm. because you're. And then they get to the point where they're kind of walking on their own and jumping and you're like, slow down. But we are always the children of God. We are always dependent. Our inward bent, our self-confidence, faith in self, will actually cause us to live in a way that is distinct from how God made us. You are always a child of God who grows more deeply into God, more aware that from start to finish, you are dependent upon his provisions and powers. I, I shared something like this with our word and prayer group on Wednesday morning. We often have this image of spiritual growth like a business sales chart, where like this increase in sales, increase in growth. I'm getting pretty good at this thing. I actually wonder if the biblical model is this reverse line. That as we grow in the faith, we are seeing more and more ways we are dependent upon Him for everything. It's not that we're becoming independent. Honestly, I need Him Sunday morning. I need Him Wednesday night. Pretty good on Monday. Right? No. How about that song, Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. That sounds like the scripture's truth. My one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need you. That is the statement of whether it's the newest Christian who is just grasping their sinful condition and the remedy of the Savior to the most senior saint who has learned over decades that every little carbon is part of the Lord's ministry to a child of God. Every little electron is in its place because God is sovereignly ministering His care and His provision, even in a fallen world, to His children. Negatively then, notice that we must believe, negatively we must not doubt that God is the giver of wisdom or that He will give wisdom to us. To doubt God is ignorance. It's the opposite of wisdom. It is the fool in Scripture. In fact, James spends the rest of the discussion fleshing out the ignorance of the doubter. Here, here's my summary. The last half of verse 6, the doubter has lost his or her foundation. Verse 7, the doubter denies the very gift only God can give. Or verse 8, the doubter is the living example of the fool. I think that that strong warning should cause us to hit on two more topics as we move to a close. First, Christians and doubt. 
Let me mention that briefly. Our culture has come to view doubt as a noble thing. Arguably some form of authenticity. Which again, authenticity in and of itself is not wrong. But some aspect of authenticity has been linked with doubt in a pretty extreme way. Or a philosopher like Descartes even uses doubt as an organizing principle for philosophical investigation. What's the Bible say about doubt? Get this. The Bible never views doubt as an activity or condition that is good in itself. Now, don't hear that poorly. This is not to say that the Bible is against us asking questions or feeling confused. Hardly. The scriptures are full of people who are asking questions and are totally confused. And God regularly responds to those with grace and kindness. The Psalms, for example, encourage believers to take their questions to God when He is hidden, to cry out to God when evil seems stronger than good. It's full of that. Psalm 22 and Psalm 73 would be two prime examples. Jesus, for example, was so tender with doubters. With with John the Baptist, he was patient when he doubted that Jesus was the Messiah. With the one called Doubting Thomas, how would you like to be known in history as Doubting Thomas? That kind of rubs wrong. With Thomas, Jesus was intentional with his challenging doubts. To the dad, who was worried for his kid who came to Jesus, the, the father said to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus was merciful to him. Still, doubt is never intrinsically good in Scripture. If doubt has a blessing, it's the result of the honesty of the doubter and his or her willingness to accept God's answers. And maybe that's the thrust of it. In the end, the Bible, like here in James, commands the doubter to leave their questions behind. At some point, you leave your questions behind. And you trust God with your whole heart. Meaning you don't let doubt have its way. But hear what that means. That forces us to let God be the ultimate authority. Not our experiences, not our intellect, not our emotions. Because if you're holding on to doubt because of what happened in your life or your mental reasoning or your particular emotion, please hear this. You are letting that be of the authority and not God. And at some point the Bible would say, I resonate with your experience, your emotions, and your intellect. But at some point, who is your ultimate authority? You or me? Finally, Christians and the double-minded. Maybe the best definition of a double-minded person is the one who is unwilling to let go of the world and truly follow Christ. There is a large number of nominal Christians who hover around Christianity and Christian things, but fail to fully commit their lives to Christ and His kingdom. Interestingly, the the double-minded is trying to serve two masters, and therefore is insincere and inconsistent in his or her allegiance to God. 
We, we have terms like the, the nominal Christian, the cultural Christian. We, we might even call them priesters because they'll show up in the big sacred moments, but it's not innate to their lives and their worship and their allegiance. The Bible describes that as double-minded. Interestingly, as the fool. Here's a fascinating reflection on that word double-minded. The word double-minded literally means double-souled, S-O-U-L. It's like they have two souls, or they're splitting their soul. They're giving part of their soul to God and part of their soul to something else. There's that challenge for allegiance. There's the fool. Notice, no foundation, no trusting fully in God. Connecting this to verses two two to four is interesting. When the fool faces suffering, what do they do? They're mad because God's not their cosmic therapist and divine butler. They're mad because this is not what they're supposed to experience because their philosophy is that they should have their best life now. But how about the wise person? The wise person lets suffering do its work in them because they trust the providence of God over their lives. And they are not double-minded. They follow Jesus through thick and thin. Their soul is aligned to him. Now you hear all that, and you might be thinking, how can I do that? Well, that brings us back to verse 5. And that little play on words, if. If any of you lacks wisdom, now that we've spoken about it, and who in here would say, yeah, I'm good. None of us, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. Oh, and by the way, who is this God? Here, here he is. Without any finding of fault, any judgment, any feelings of shame, this intimate, powerful Heavenly Father will exactly when you need it, with all intentionality, give you wisdom. Because he loves you. And you, Lord willing, will completely trust him. And what's that look like? It looks like a beautiful way of life. With Jesus and his kingdom at the center. And you, an intimate and trusting child of God, walking in it. Well, we better do what the text says. We better ask. So before I close us in prayer and then we end with the doxology, take a moment just right there where you are and respond to these verses by asking God to give you wisdom in the ways that right now in your life or your family, you might need it. And in a moment, I'll close us in prayer. Father, we think of the song, We Need You. Every hour we need you. And even in this room, with a few hundred people, we know that there are numerous situations right now where your wisdom is needed. How comforting it is to know that you are both generously intentional with your actions of giving us wisdom as we seek it. Like that dad said to Jesus, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. 
We pray that you would give us wisdom so that we could live a way of life that reflects the life that you have assigned to us as both creator and redeemer. Form our thoughts and our will and our loves and our commands, not just for our good, Father, but for your glory. Thank you for the wisdom of your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.